This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 771. So I'm like, what else are they doing? What else are they doing to these people that are really financially strapped to like squeeze as much pennies as they can out of them? It's like like shaking them upside down and like trying to squeeze every penny out of them. Bullies in high school, right? Right. That's what it feels like. It totally feels like that. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast. Here today with a Seeing Green episode, and I brought friends none more important than my good friend rob Abasolo. rob good afternoon to you howdy how you doing yeah you having a good time over there we had a great time we actually have another person who's going to be joining us christina smallhorn who runs a youtube channel and specializes in home affordability and today rob christina and i will be taking turns answering questions from you the best audience in the entire world about uh, home affordability and concerns in the market in today's show we are going to cover when you should build to rent and when you shouldn't if the 40-year mortgage is actually a good idea things that you never knew about home affordability and as a bonus to you, our loyal listeners, you are going to get to hear our Dave Ramsey impressions. All that and more on today's Seeing Green. Rob, what was some of your favorite parts of today's show? Aside from all of the bullets you just gave, uh, you didn't you didn't leave me a bone here. You got to toss me a bone every so often. But I will say, at the very end of the episode, uh, I think that we got pretty, you know, I don't want to say, like, not too real, but we got pretty real about affordability of homes. Uh, how it's kind of a problem that a lot of people can't afford to get into homes with today's standard of living, some possible solutions, just some some questions. Like we ask questions that I feel like we don't really ask all that often on the podcast. And so I think it's nice to kind of bring this perspective in to just kind of keep us grounded a bit, you know? Absolutely. We are committed to keeping it real. That's what we do today. If you would like to be featured on a Bigger Pockets podcast yourself, Go to biggerpox.com slash David, where you can submit your questions and hopefully we choose one to get it answered. So make sure you leave a good one. And as you listen to today's show, leave us some comments on the Bigger Pockets YouTube channel. Uh, if you're listening on there, we want to hear what you thought. Did you laugh? Did you cry? Did you think? What do you wish that we would have talked about? And what were you happy that we discussed? You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. connectinvest.com VP. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rent to retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. We need to double check with Zach, rental retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. 
Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where RentReady steps in. Now, RentReady's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with RentReady. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six-month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit rentready.com. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, like me, to get six months of rent ready for $1, which is crazy. Before we bring in Christina, today's quick tip is... When you're heading in to buy a new construction property, or even if you think you're just going to look, you can easily get screwed. They have lots of ways to do it. Listen to today's show, and I am going to give you some uh, three pointers to make sure you don't get burned by new home construction. Uh, That's all I have. Let's get to Christina. Welcome, everybody, to the Bigger Pockets podcast here today with a Seeing Green episode. Now, normally on these Seeing Green episodes, I am, so to speak, the only tree in the forest, but I brought some trees with me. I have my good friend, Rob Abasolo, as well as our guest today, Christina Smallhorn, to help me answer questions. And together, we all trees make up a forest. So this is going to be a Seeing Forest Green episode. Hope you see what I did there. Christina, welcome to the show, and thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yes. Can you give our audience a very brief uh, maybe summary of what your experience with real estate is like and how you serve people? Uh, I've been in real estate since 2008. I'm a real estate agent here in Louisiana. I mostly focus and work with people that are looking for affordable housing options, whether that be a manufactured home, modular home, tiny home, and pieces of affordable land to build their most affordable housing option. I'm trying to get them out of the rental game without having to sink down thousands and thousands of dollars. Most people are, a lot of people that are looking to buy are right now, affordability is such a problem. I'm giving them ideas of alternative ways to get into the real estate game. And it's clear to me that you are a YouTuber because you understand uh, metadata. You worked affordable like four times into your question there, which would be great on a YouTube algorithm. And also will stick in our viewers' minds as that's the person to go to if I need something affordable. Well done. Oh, I, I totally didn't plan that. <laughs> yeah, but it's just a part of your nature. That's how giving you are. And Rob, who are you for anyone that doesn't know? I am also a, a YouTuber. Uh, I talk about, I, I build tiny houses. I'm also the co-host the titular co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast. So I'm just guest starring today. And for those that don't speak fancy, can you explain what titular means? Oof, you know, I think it's like a like an informal title or it's like a title that's given to me that doesn't really mean anything other than, look, I just show up at a talk on a microphone. I don't know if that word means what you think it means. I'm pretty sure I'm going to look at holding or constituting a purely formal position or title without any real authority. Ba-ba-ba-bam! 
How does that feel? How does that feel in front of all of our listeners? Is that what you said? In so many words. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will accept it. Judges say that that is an acceptable answer. Uh, Christina, why is affordability so important to you that it is baked into your subconscious and comes out of your words? The Bible says that the words of the mouth are the overflow of the heart. We can tell affordability is written deeply into your heart. Why is that so? Um, It probably really started with me with a client that I was trying to help. This guy had um, lived on his family land and he had a manufactured home and he was he didn't know what to do. He wanted to sell his manufactured home. I wanted to keep the land. I'm like, we don't real estate agents don't work that way. We can't do that. And he's like, this this loan is killing me. You know, they only give you so many periods of time to to uh, finance this. And I'm like, well, what, let me see your loan. What are you doing? So the way that they had done his loan, instead of rolling the land and the manufactured home in together, where you could have gotten an FHA or even a rural development loan, which have cost him a lot less, they put him in something called a chattel loan which I had never heard of until, I mean, it was like my first years in real estate. So I looked it up and what he was paying in interest was ridiculous. And so I got him connected with somebody that's, you know, in this industry uh, as far as lending. And he was like, yeah, we can put it in the 30-year loan. It will save him almost $250 a month, which doesn't seem like a lot, but this is was enough for him to not lose his house. And so he was able to do that. But they didn't do that to for him at the beginning when they should have. And that just ticked me off. And that was the people that finance on the lots because they knew that they could get them for more money and it gives them a bonus to do this. And that just lit a fire in my hiney. So I'm like, what else are they doing? What else are they doing to these people that are really financially strapped to like squeeze as much pennies as they can out of them? It's like like shaking them upside down and, and like trying to squeeze every penny out of them. Bullies in high school, right? Right. That's what it feels like. It totally feels like that. And um. I think that's kind of like where the slimy sales agent comes in. And so even my husband and I would go on to these lots and kind of like, we lied. I'm not going to lie. We're going to lie. We lied. Wait a minute. You're not going to lie. You lied. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. We totally lied to these people. This is becoming lieception. Can I trust that this is not a lie if you lied? Or is that the only time you can trust someone is if they say, I'm not lying? How many layers deep are we here? You know, I was playing a character basically. <laughs> and, and, and I was trying to find out what the salespeople were doing. And it was very clear that they had rehearsed a a script for quite some time. So they knew how to be very evasive in their questions and getting you to pushing you towards that financing in their office, financing in their office. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'm going to put educational videos out there telling people you don't have to finance in their office. Before we get to today's questions, would you guys like me to share an industry secret that no one would know about real estate if they weren't a mortgage broker and a real estate agent at the same time? Tell me. This is going to blow people's minds away. What if Christine and I both were like, no, let's just get to the question, actually. That'd be very awkward, right? That would have been impressive if you had like the cojones to actually do that on my show. Actually, no, David, I think we've heard from you enough. And then you just started reading the first question. That'd have been funny. Okay. Yes, we do want to know. Tell us. For the listeners, okay? Oftentimes, you will go into a new construction situation with this beautiful home development and you see the flags in the air and you go in there and they don't want you to have an agent because they don't want to pay a commission. They'll get you to sign up. And if you sign up, you are now ineligible to have an agent represent you on the transaction. First thing, don't go in there and say, I'm just going to look because the minute you sign in to look at homes, which they make you do, you've disqualified yourself from being able to have buyer representation. Number two, they do not use the same forms that realtors use, state approved forms that everyone uses. They have forms that... because 
though state approved forms are more or less completely neutral, the way that you fill them out will put leverage in one side or the other. Well, these construction forms are 100% geared towards protecting them and not you. And you would not understand the subtlety of these details until you were screwed unless you were a real estate agent. And number three, most important, they will usually have a lender that they say, use our preferred lender and we will pay for 1% of your closing costs. $10,000 of your closing costs, whatever. First off, they're making way more money from you not having a realtor, so you're not actually saving that. And second off, you're not even saving it on the loan. What's happening is that lender is going to give you a a, uh, interest rate above par, above the, the par for that time, which may not make sense to you, but what they're basically doing is giving you a higher rate and then contributing that lender credit towards you and telling you that they are saving you that $10,000. They're really not. You could have got that same credit using a different lender that you had a relationship with. They're not giving you anything free. They just move the pieces around. So like you said, Christina, it is very, very, very dicey when you walk into those situations and you're doing it without any kind of a guide. So quick tip of the day, if you're going to look at new construction homes, go find your agent first. Christine, anything you want to add on that before we get into the questions? Yeah. So you want to add to that that way that they even make more money? So you use their lender. <laughs> you don't use their agent. And they also want you to use their preferred title company. <laughs> and they usually own the lender and the title company. So yeah, they're making their money. All right. You guys are welcome for these industry standards. Let's say, guys, I just want to say this. Um be careful saying this stuff. You know, I, I made a video on YouTube not too long ago called, well, actually about a year and a half ago, it's called the harsh reality about prefabs and why I won't ever buy them. And it was about this industry. And I said things like this, whoo, the, the angry comments that, that this is the only time I get angry comments from people are whenever I talk about the, this industry specifically. So just watch out. You guys, you officially have targets on your back now. Tell them to bring it. I stand in between the bad guys and the good people of the bigger pockets community, and I will continue to hold the line like a good Spartan. All right. Our first question comes from Jero. Jero says, should investors begin to pivot towards build to rent, in other words, developing, as well as owners who plan on occupying? His hypothesis is that it will become increasingly more economical for buyers to purchase land plots and rent while they develop and burr their primary homes. Christina, what say you? I hate build to rent. I, I mean, I guess if you're an investor, I mean, that's fantastic, those build to rent. Because, I mean, I believe that the younger generations, kids my my daughter's age, are, are convinced they will never be able to afford a home. So if you're going to invest in build to rent communities, go for it. You know, like <laughs> there's probably going to be a big, uh, the, the future looks like there's going to be more people renting than buying. But uh, I, I, I'm one of those people that makes the videos that tell people, try to vote against build to rent communities in your area. So so you say try to vote against them. Yeah, I vote against them always. Okay, so what's the reason why you don't think people should get into that? But before we get into the reason, David, what is build to rent? Oh, this is just just like it sounds. You're building a house, but instead of selling it to somebody else, you're keeping it, refinancing it. I guess it's a form of burr. Instead of buy, rehab, rent, friends, repeat, it'd be like build. Part of building is rehabbing. Then you would rent it out and then refinance to get out of the construction loan and then keep it as a rental property. Oh, okay, cool, cool. So it's like a new construction burr. Got it. Yeah, a new construction. Oh, I was thinking that you were talking about build to rent communities where the big investors come in, make these whole community that's just build to rent. Oh, okay. So they, I don't think that's what the, that's a good answer to your, the question that you thought I was asking. I don't know, but I think Jero is saying, 
I can't find a deal. It's too expensive to buy a property that somebody else, I can build it for cheaper than I could buy it. Is this something that investors should start looking into? It's not a bad idea. I don't think build to rent is a bad idea if you're planning on doing that. I, w- I, I was confused by your question. I'm so sorry about that. But I, if you can get them building materials for cheaper and in, you know, there's nothing in your area, why not do it? Especially if you have the, your own land already. Well, I'm sorry for confusing you. Hopefully artificial intelligence doesn't take my job and ask the questions better. Rob has me terrified now. Rob, what's your what's your take on this build to rent debacle? Um, so here's the deal. I think that so people often ask me this when they're like, hey, should I get it? You know, should I just buy a house or should I build to rent? And ultimately, this is what I think. It all comes down to your preference and your goals. Right. So if you need to cash flow now, then you should not do build to rent. You should go and find a property, buy it right now and you know make whatever money you can from buying said property. But if your long term goal, if you're like, I don't need the cash flow now. I'm willing to wait, then build to rent is a really great option. It just it's gonna take anywhere from 14 to 18 months to complete a project. But the upside of it is that you're building in so much equity, it is so much cheaper because you're building it at your cost effectively, right? And your cash flow when it will inevitably be better. You just have to wait 14 to 18 months. So it really depends on how squeezed you are for cash flow. If you need it now, not a great strategy. But if you can wait, then I think it's probably the best way to build equity in real estate. I like Rob's pants. Answer better. Can I answer this really quick? I'm so sorry to interrupt <laughs> you, David, but I have to, like, I can't help myself. It's my forest. You are allowed to be your tree. I liked Rob's answer better. But I, as he was talking, I started thinking about it. If you have a piece of land and you don't want to wait those all those months and it's zone that you're able to put in a manufactured home, that you can put a manufactured home in that place. And yes, those rent like hotcakes. People will rent a manufactured home. And so you're like instantaneous rental right away. And you can find like really good deals uh, for foreclosed manufactured homes. You can get a, you can get a, we're almost brand new, like a year old for like $6,000. That's happens. That happens all the time. And you put that in the spot, set it up, call it a day. And now you've got an instant rental. Like, if you really wanted to go cash flow quick. <laughs> so you could actually get a, a manufactured home that cheap, six, six to $10,000. If you go to like, um, you go to these websites that have foreclosed properties from like your local banks and lenders. And a lot of times because of people having those chattel loans, they, are, they have to repossess the house. And when they repossess it, because of the fact that it can't be refinanced again, it cannot, you cannot finance it again because it's been moved twice at this point. So now it's like a dead property, but you, that's why you get it so cheap. You can get it, you know, six, ten thousand dollars, something like that, you know, and it's brand new. Sometimes they still even have the stickers in them, you know. Let's break this down a little bit more, Christina. What is a chattel loan? A chattel loan is uh, basically it's not tied to anything. So like a lot of times, what people will compare it to a car loan. So it's an unsecured loan, so to speak. Yes. And how does that apply to the real estate property? So. Some people have a piece of land. They'll own a piece of land and they'll want to have a house put on there. So they're afraid to kind of tie the land in with the piece of property. So they have this chattel loan on their manufactured home and they're going to go ahead and put it there. This, uh, But it doesn't really work out into their benefit because they don't really get a very good interest rate on that. And they can't roll any other uh, amenities to the property that you would need, like utilities, uh, electricity, anything like that. So Um, it's better to do almost like a new construction loan. Let me see if I can break this down and then get your clarity from it. So to understand this better, when we think of getting a loan on a house, what we're actually getting is a loan on a house with land attached to it. You're getting both when you get that loan. 
And then that conforms to government standards. So now you can get a 30-year fixed rate loan, which makes your payment less, keeps your interest rates lower. That's what everyone is used to hearing. But there are loans that are different than that. For instance, you can get a loan on a car, not a house. But most loans that you get are tied to an asset that's called secured, which keeps the interest rate lower because the idea is if you don't pay back that loan, the person can foreclose and take your car, take your house, take whatever. Unsecured loans would be something like a credit card loan where it's not tied to anything. So it's riskier for the person giving the loan, which means they make up for that risk by giving you a higher rate, which is why a credit card rate is higher than a home mortgage or a HELOC or a loan you take against your stock portfolio. So secured loans are something that if you don't pay it back, they could take something from you, which we also call collateral. If you've ever heard that phrase, that might've just clicked. Oh, it's like collateral. Like you've been in a restaurant, you forgot your wallet and you're like, I got to leave and get my wallet. And they're like, the hell you do. You're not leaving until you pay. And what do you say? Well, what if I leave my car keys here with you? So you know that I don't leave. That's, that's how collateral works. It reduces the risk of the person that's owed. A chattel loan is a form of an unsecured loan that you take out to buy the land that you put the house on, or is it to buy the house when you already own the land? Um, you could do either. So some people will uh, buy a manufactured home and put it in a um, rented uh, like park, like mobile home park. So you just you just have the load on the, the manufactured home itself. Okay. So they could take the home if you don't make the payment, but they can't take the land. You keep the land. They cannot take the land. If it's a chattel loan, they cannot take your land. Makes sense. So this is why these loans apply to mobile home parks or RVs, because you can move the house off of the land. They're not tied together like we would normally think about it. But you said the rates are higher, right? Right. And you also mentioned something along the lines of you can only like refinance them twice. Is that right? Um, that will depend on the lender. And I and it, there is stipulations on how you can refinance the age of the manufactured home. They're much more difficult to refinance when you do refinance them. And they will uh, refinance at a higher rate as well. Especially if rates have gone up since the time that you got it, right? Correct. Okay. So this is why you don't like this method because it's putting people at risk who don't quite understand it, these are not 30-year fixed rate mortgages like a normal house. They're going to be due sooner and the rates can go up. Right. But I don't think the product should uh, be eliminated because there's plenty of people. But like if you look at a lot of retirees, they buy their small little manufactured park. They have on a fixed income. They know that they can afford it and they were able to, you know, move their little manufactured home into the park. And it's a retirement community. They're all like all over New Jersey and Florida. So they rent that land underneath it and they have the chat alone on the manufactured home. I think the product is necessary. I think some of the practices with the product is terrible. I've got a, I've got a follow up question before the follow up. Fun fact, the way that I learned what collateral was, was an episode of the Brady Bunch. I don't know if anybody ever saw that episode. They were trying to get their parents like an engraved silver platter. If anybody learned that from that episode, please leave a comment in the YouTube uh, video. Uh, just so I know I'm not alone here. But what I wanted to to clarify with you, Christina, was you're saying like these homes, <clears throat> they're six to 10K. Is this effectively like a mobile home? Because aren't there also like manufactured homes that are like 200K or 300K that are effectively like stick built homes that are kind of shipped in and built on site? Are they different things? Okay. So I'm talking about manufactured homes. They're li they used to be called mobile homes or trailer homes. But what you're talking about is modular homes that look like stick-built homes. Both of them are made in a manufactured plant. So they're still considered manufactured homes. What the building standard they're built to is what changes. So when you have a manufactured home, they're built to HUD specifications. Usually they have the same appearance. They kind of look like the one straight across. They have the skirting at the bottom. Sometimes people will put 
uh, like some kind of decking on the front and the back. Like a flower bed or something. Yeah, they don't have a garage or anything like that unless you build it on afterwards. But a modular home, it looks just like a traditional built home. It just happens to be that each room is built in a factory. They bring those little cubes, they lock them together like little Legos and they're little modules that are put together. But they're all made in a manufacturing plant. Okay, so some similarities, but those are typically the more expensive of the two, right? Right, yeah. I mean, the modular homes can go up into the millions. Okay, so the idea here is order to improve affordability would be you buy land, you then buy a manufactured home, or how are we classifying the other type? Fabricated? uh, Modular. Manufactured or modular, and manufactured is the better quality, more expensive type. Is that right? Modular is the more expensive. Yeah, modular slash prefab. That that would be the more expensive, like... like boxable or like some of these that are like really high end shipping containers. Right. So you have to be careful though, because not uh, all prefabs are actually, even though they're built to modular standards, there may not be modular standards for your specific area. Just because it's built to modular standards, it may not be building code for your specific state. So just be very careful. The, The local building, especially if you live somewhere like California, I've gone down this route so many times. I I think so many Californians have where they're like, Oh, I'm going to buy a piece of land in Malibu for look, this one's like $12,000. And I'm just going to put this like $50,000 home on it. And it's like, eh, the land is unbuildable. And the actual house itself will probably cost a lot more than that. I'm curious though, Christina, is there a secret to buying the right kind of land? Is there any kind of watch outs or red flags that one should consider in those instances? I'll give you one of my favorite tips to give people if you're looking for a piece of land is to find a piece of land that had a old house on it or an old manufactured home because that means that it's already had utilities to the area. That that's like to me a gem when you are walking through a piece of land and you find like an old uh, frame of a house or old slab there that it's like you've just hit the jackpot because you've <laughs> they've already had utilities out there. So it's going to be a lot easier for you. That was my next question. So I remember a certain person that is very attached to my life, whose name I will not say, called me one time incredibly excited about this amazing deal in the Smoky Mountains where it was like 50 acres and he had done the math in his head. Well, now we know it's a he and was like, all right, if we, if we, if we turn these into half acre plots, we could do a hundred houses and the land's only this much money and we can build for this much per square foot. We're going to build this many at a time and then refinance them and then build the next ones. We're going to have a whole community of cabins. Real estate developing is not that hard. David, let's move on this thing. And I listened to him and I was like, okay, how much is it going to cost to run the utilities and the sewage and the electrical? And there was this very long, awkward pause. And I realized that person did not think that that is a part of building a home. And that's the part that gets everyone when they ask this question. That's the expensive part for sure. Yes, that's the hard part. It can be it's always utilities. wildly expensive to have to run utilities when they're up on the middle of a mountain in front of nothing, how you're going to get electricity up there. And if you want like like the plumbing and everything. So Christina, what advice do you have for people who got all excited hearing this and then are now being brought down to earth that there's actually some work that goes into the infrastructure to put up a residential dwelling? I think that people are, are they have wild ideas. I always call them the dreamers because they those people, they start talking. I'm like, they have not even put into perspective all the things that can happen to a piece of land. There's so many things. And in every area you live in, there's going to be some other element that you never thought of when it comes to like zoning, when it comes to flood conditions, when it comes to wetlands, 
you have to put all of that in perspective. So whenever you're looking at a piece of dirt, I suggest you put together a uh, spreadsheet of all these things, you know, like all the certificates does it have? Does it have a, a flood certificate? Does it have like a mining certificate? Is there any leases on this land that you need to know about? Um, there's like so many things before you even decide to put a house there because you may not be able to put a house on a piece of land, especially if it's never had a home there before. That's why I always say it's like the biggest green flag is that if you're if it's already had a house there, you've already jumped over a thousand hurdles because <laughs> even though you have a piece of dirt too, the the land quality may not be good enough to support a house on it itself. So you have to have soil tests too. I mean, it's it's insane how many things that can happen with dirt. Yeah, it's not like you just go and build a permit. You uh, sorry, it's not like you just go and pull a permit. It's there's a whole process that goes into that. And oh man, I could I could honestly talk about what to look for in land all day, but uh, I, I, I kind of want to, but it's fine. Maybe there's a question that will get us back into the land land side of things. I have like a thousand videos about buying land on YouTube, like all the things, the pitfalls you can have about buying land. Um, but there is a really good book out there. I didn't write it. Her name's Cheryl Sane, and it's like the 10 things you didn't know about buying land. And it like kind of walks you, I call it the land buying Bible. Uh, she has a great book on that. So you're a bit of an architect. You show up at this at this uh, landscape and you get on your hands and knees with your microscope and you go digging through the dirt with a little brush, but you're not looking for dinosaur bones. You're looking for a foundation, two by fours, uh, any indication that at some point a house was built on this land, right? Yes. And if that, it hasn't been there, I'm also getting on my hands and knees and with a metal detector to see if there's any pylons in the four corners to find out where they're at. And if it's there, I take a piece of string then go around each corner so I can see exactly where that the land is and meets and everything. It's interesting. Yeah. That's, that's one of my favorite tips. <laughs> I think we just simultaneously created so much hope in people and stopped so many people from losing money. I have another thing though. So, so if you are in an area that the land may not be good enough for a home, it might be okay for a manufactured home because they don't weigh as much as the typical house. So if they've said no to a home and you're area zone that you're allowed to have a manufactured home there, you may want to have a survey done with that. Last question. How could someone tell what type of a property would go best on the type of land they're looking at? Um, so I would work with a local real estate agent, you know, <laughs> I, I'd, I would work with a local real estate agent that understands the land and understands the area itself. And I would have a complete survey done on your hand, on your property to let you know where all the pitfalls are, because that survey is like the, uh, almost like your car facts, you know, it's your land facts of the of the land. And just make sure that you have everything that you need to know about that. That's the only way you're going to know if you have a good piece of property or not. You can do that during your due diligence time, the period. So you can't put it in a contract, give yourself a contingency to back out based on due diligence. And that's when you can look up the information. Yeah, basically an, an option period, it, especially, which I think is important no matter what land you buy. But I do have a lot of people that approach me that are like, Oh man, I want to buy these 50 acres. It's half a million dollars. What do you think? And I'm like, give yourself a serious amount of due diligence to actually figure it out because even when it says it's no zoning or non-restrictive zoning and you can build whatever you want, it's very rarely actually the case. So that's my warning, my general warning to everybody. It's be very careful and go to your city planners and actually ask them what you can build on there. That's going to be how you get the best answer to that question, I think. Listeners, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. 
Let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor, to get six months of rent ready for $1. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. And BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners' capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. All right, our next question comes from Matt. Matt says, with home price appreciation and rising interest rates decreasing affordability for the four first-time homeowners, do you think there's a possibility of a 40-year mortgage at some point? Or do you see some other way that the government might intervene to address the affordability issue? Christina, you're passionate about affordability. I'm sure you've given this little thought. What's your take here? I hate the 40-year mortgage. I think it's a really stupid idea. It's tricky, isn't it? All they're doing is adding... <laughs> yeah, it's dumb because they're, all they're doing is adding another 10 years where the bank could get more money. It's not helping the person that's actually actually, you know, buying the house, your payment would go down so insignificantly over those 40 years that you'd be paying. All you're doing is giving more money to the bank. Uh, 30 years is plenty of time. Um, I think that there should be some programs currently when it comes to affordability. The, the cheapest homes, the least expensive homes in the area are being bought up by a lot of investors. And I think they should start capping how many houses in a neighborhood should be turned into rentals. I think that should be like citywide in each city. Uh, I know that would 
really burn people's rear end and stuff. But Our audience is loving hearing this right now. I don't. I mean, the thing is, is I'm not like I'm not the investor that wants every house in the neighborhood to turn into rentals. That's totally fair. So what would your thoughts be if you bought a house to live in it and then decide you want to move out? Would that mean that you can't rent it out? You'd have to sell it to somebody else? I, you know, this would depend on how many houses in a neighborhood were already rentals. Like a, like a condominium, like HOA that says you can only have X amount of these as rental properties. Correct. And every neighborhood can do that, by the way. And even if you're an older neighborhood, you can uh, make an amendment to your, your covenants to allow for that to happen. I don't think anybody wants to um, churn their whole entire neighborhood into rental units. I don't think en- that anybody wants that. And I do believe rental homes have their place, but it, I don't want to see our future generations only being renters and not having the opportunity to own a home. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> All right. And and so the 40-year mortgage, sum up, what is the reason you don't like it? I think that it's making a person pay 10 more years to the bank for no reason. I don't think it's necessarily the best a product for a person trying to buy a home. I think there should be some programs that incentivize people that have never owned a home, not people that didn't haven't owned a home in the last seven years. If you've never owned a house, you've never had been on title work where you owned a home, I think they should help those first-time home buyers with some kind of like closing cost package like they did back in the, during the last housing crash when they helped first-time home buyers. Right now, it'd be terrible for them to do something like that um, because we just don't have enough supply of houses. I also think that they need to, the government needs to incentivize builders to build more affordable housing, not not just rental affordability, because that's what they do. They're like, oh, we're doing this for affordable housing, but it's all rentals. That is not helping the affordability problem. We need houses. There's plenty of people with really good credit. They just can't find any place to purchase a house. So let me break this down for anyone that hasn't done the math <clears throat> on 30-year versus a 40-year mortgage. If you got a 30-year mortgage, for $500,000 at a 6.5% interest rate, the total interest that you would pay on that would be $637,722. So that means you'd pay back almost $640,000 plus the $500,000 of principal. So you end up paying back over 1.1, okay? So remember that number of almost 638. If they put this to a 40-year mortgage, that interest of what I believe I said was 638 jumps up to 905. That's So you're paying almost $300,000 more for the exact same property, nothing different, putting it on a 40-year instead of a 30-year. Now, the same could be said if you go from 30-year back to 20 or 20 back to 10, right? There is an argument to be made that the, the longer you spread out this loan, the more expensive it becomes. The way it becomes misleading is that we've all created a baseline of what a house is worth based off of a 30-year mortgage. It's just, it's in your subconscious. That is how you look at real estate. The minute you turn this into 40, you will start to see home prices again continue to increase more and more and more because the payment got lower for the same property. And it's a way of... uh creating the look of affordability, but not actually making it affordable. In this case, it's it's the opposite of affordable. You spent $300,000 more going from a 30 to a 40. So hearing that information, Christina, what does that make you think about? The banks probably want this uh, this product really bad. I think they really want it. Let, let me chime in here. I think I can assist with the Pam Pan situation. Um, So I don't know how I feel about it. So just let me just say, no dog in the race here. But I do think exactly what you just said, David. I mean, 30-year mortgage, that's what we know. It's relative. It's all relative to to the product we know. If we had grown up where 40-year mortgages were the standard, we wouldn't think there's anything wrong with that. So I would say, ultimately, yes, the banks are winning. But if you think about it from the perspective of someone that's going to rent for 10 years before they buy their house anyway... I think that 
the argument could be made that at least they are building equity. And I also think that you could build, you could make the argument that appreciation is at work for 40 years versus 30 years. So although you are paying more interest, if you hold on to that property for 40 years, you will have a lot more equity and appreciation that happens over time. You would have got that appreciation the same way. But it doesn't make sense, though, because the fact is, is now you've spread those payments out even longer. So your appreciation value is going to be it's going to be taken away. Because I, I guess, Rob, if you if you had the loan for 30 years is paid off. Now you still have 10 years of appreciation to get to the 40 period. But it's 10 years of appreciation with no mortgage if it's paid off in 30. Very, very well. And I guess I'm thinking of it more. I guess we should also clarify who this loan would work for, because I think that it could work for investors who all they want is to leverage their money, have lower down payments so that they can cash flow more too. So, I mean, I guess it would it would really depend on the use case. I think that the 40-year mortgage is specifically going to benefit an investor versus probably someone who's going to own this home and pay way more interest as a result. And doesn't understand finances the same way. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Right. Like the arm. Assuming that values were the same, you will cash flow more with a 40-year mortgage rather than a 30 uh, right off the bat, but you will end up spending more on interest. It's it's a trade-off, which those of us that are listening to podcasts like this in the real estate space understand the trade-off. We're a little more... It's like a HELOC. HELOC can be a great tool for an investor like us. It can be the worst financial decision anyone ever made for a non-educated uh, homeowner who doesn't know how these things work. They go take a HELOC. They spend $100,000 to put this fancy backyard and they realize it made their house worth $3,000 more. <laughs> and they thought it was a good investment. That swimming pool. Yes, the swimming pool is like... What this actually reminds me of, funny where I brought up HELOCs, was 2004, 2005, 2006. It was a very similar scenario where affordability had gotten out of hand. You, the value of a house, what it would sell for. You have something to add there, Christina? Yeah, I want to I want to add to this when you when you get finished. Okay, we'll turn to you. Affordability had gotten out of hand because that what someone is willing to pay for a house was much more than what the average person or a normal person could afford because we had these uh variable interest rates. You could get in at 0% or 1%, then after 2 years it would adjust. So it made houses seem more affordable than they really were. They were not affordable. And the 40-year mortgage the first time I ever saw it was in 2005, 2006, because they had the same problem. How do we get you to qualify for this house? Because you don't make enough money to buy it, but that's how much they all cost. So they started coming up with these creative loan scenarios. The HELOC was another one, right? The adjustable rate mortgage. All of these were solutions that banks came up with that you can't afford the house, but we want houses to be affordable for people. And I don't, I'm not saying we're at that level right now. But we are starting to see the exact same logic popping up 20 years later. I was just going to say that the difference between that and now is the fact that then there were so many houses on the market that you could you could purchase. Too much supply. Yes. So much supply. I mean, like, so there were so many people that could enter the market. Because they had been building crazy from 2000 to 2005. Yes. Like everywhere you went, they were building new homes. And they were giving loans to everybody under the sun. So, yeah, I can understand at that time why they were coming up with some of these products. but. I just don't think we're in that position now. It, that's what's different. So the affordability is probably similar. It was not affordable then. It's not affordable now. The supply dynamic, supply demand dynamic is much different now. There's not enough supply. And that's why these prices are still so high. And that is not, it's not out of balance as much as people think. Versus back then, houses were expensive, but there was way too many of them. They were every, at least where I lived in, in central, uh, in Northern California, in the Central Valley, 
you could not drive down the freeway without seeing new home developments everywhere you looked. And that's not, we actually have the problem, uh, the opposite problem right now. We need more houses to be built. Like you mentioned, that's the best way that we could bring affordability back. Now, Rob, after I've already picked through this chicken wing and eaten all the big bites of chicken off of it, I'm now going to hand you the bone and say, would you like to find anything to comment on here? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I do actually. Well, I said, if you buy a 30-year mortgage, right? Or so I said, if you buy a 40-year mortgage loan product and it appreciates over 40 years, you said, well, you could just own it for 30 and then... Okay, so my logic was... Well, no, I get that part, but is that not the same logic as why wouldn't you get a 15-year mortgage and then just have an extra 15 years after you've paid it off to get appreciation? Can't you keep like always using that log- logic for shorter learn- loan terms? Absolutely. And so I would also argue a 15-year mortgage is healthier if someone can afford it than a 30-year mortgage. Now we're getting into Dave Ramsey territory. This is it. like That's the argument he makes. Why don't you, if you can't buy the whole thing cash, then don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have $500 under your mattress, you are stupid. If you're not eating sand for breakfast, you are stupid. <laughs> There's minerals in that sand. Do you know how much free sand there is on the beach and you're not eating that? <laughs> for the next year, you will be eating bags of sand until you are out of debt you hear me well, i heard you but well, i heard you we should have him on this show that would be very funny so yeah, i mean he is his his logic is sound it's not practical that's what we're balancing here of course a 15-year mortgage is better than a 30 of course paying cash is better than 15 because supply and demand is so out of whack and because we printed so much money that needs to find a house it is no longer practical to pay cash for a home right if you try to save up enough cash to buy a house Prices would probably appreciate faster than you could save money. You'd be 70 years old. You never would have caught up with it. You have to use debt in this case. We're just bringing up the fact that it is becoming increasingly more comfortable for people to keep taking on more debt, keep taking on more debt without thinking about the type of debt they're taking on. I don't know that 40-year mortgages are inherently evil. There are scenarios where they could make sense for the person. They are dangerous in the sense that If you take a 40-year mortgage to buy a property, housing prices are going to continue to increase because payments are going lower. It's going to make you think in your head, that house is worth... 1.2 1.2 million. And then if they stop making 40 year mortgages, they go back to 30. Now no one can pay 1.2 million. You're stuck with an asset worth 900,000 and you have to wait for inflation to bring it back to the 1.2. So if you're going to do this to your point, Rob, it has to be a cash flowing property that if the value of the asset decreases because they get rid of the 40 year mortgages, you, you're okay holding it. It's the person buying the house to live in that's at risk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it gets an in, in, interesting talk because it's, it's like, you're saying you don't think it's inherently evil, but we're talking like a 30 year mortgage on a half a million dollar house. You're going to spend 700 K on interest. Like that's, that's obviously a terrible financial decision when you look at it on paper like that. So, you know, I think it's, it's kind of like, okay, 700 K in interest, 800 K they're both awful. You know, like it's, they're bad when you're looking at the interest, but when you factor in how fast things are appreciating, you end up making money by paying all that interest, right? So you you can't say it's it's good or it's bad. You have to compare it. So when you compare a 30 to a 40, the 40 becomes dangerous because it can trick you. It's deceiving. is what It's deceptive is what I'm getting at. It'll, it will make you believe that house is worth more. But if it's a 40-year or nothing, 
and we don't believe they're going to get rid of 40 years, that might just become the norm. And then our baseline changes from houses being valued based on a 30-year mortgage payment into a 40. Then it's no longer dangerous because we've all adopted that this is just the the new norm. And I think that's the danger, honestly. Like, I mean, I already did think this, but talking this through, the danger would be for people to examine all financial decisions on a 40-year mortgage versus 30. I think that's where the economy and like, People buying home buying and investing. I think that gets really in murky territory if we start really like basically promoting like paying multiple six figures more in interest. It's not an easy answer to just fix your problem. There's going to be consequence. If you go get a 40 year mortgage by your house, it's more affordable. But what if you got to move and the next person doesn't want a 40 year mortgage? They're going to buy it based off of a 30 year mortgage system. You're stuck. You can't unload the property. That's where I think the danger comes in. The 40 year mortgage isn't a new concept, though. It's been around. You know, they've, they've tried this a couple times. Didn't really work out. Always in times of unaffordability. That's that's really the common denominator is this pops up when housing is unaffordable. If we start to see adjustable rate mortgages for residential real estate becoming common, I'm going to be sounding the alarm, waving the flag. This is a legit indicator that we are heading into a collapse, most likely, of the housing market. Uh, so that's why we're talking about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then you know, it's always all on the lenders. Like they, if they can qualify people for the right kind of loan. Like uh, we were looking at arms there for a little, a hot minute when interest rates were were coming about. People were talking about those, like, oh, I think I'm going to do an arm. <laughs> like, I think I'm going to do a balloon payment. Oh, <laughs> for the average person, that is not that good idea. You know, like you you don't know how to work. The most people don't understand how to work those loans correctly especially if they're going to be living in the house. So Christina, you're clearly passionate about this and and helping people prevent themselves from making financial mistakes. What's the biggest misconception that you're hoping to set the record straight on with your YouTube channel? Um, Not everybody that uh, is looking to um, get into an affordable home are stupid and that, you know, these people are real people that are just looking for an affordable home. And just because they are affordable, that doesn't mean their credit's terrible. It doesn't mean that they don't have a job. It doesn't mean they're not working. These are people, a lot of them have great credit. They have really good paying jobs that they've been able to have a very good income on. They just can't find an affordable house. And uh, I think that uh, society has looked down on people that live in what I I call manufactured homes. Some people call them trailers or mobile homes. But they're just people that are working and have a home and this is what they can afford. And, uh, you know, like telling people, well, you should have budgeted better and you could have bought a house. That is not helping the problem and by any means of the imagination. And I'm just trying to give them a good resource so that way they can find an affordable home and they don't get taken advantage of. That's my passion. I've got some advice for the people listening in that position. I saw a meme yesterday and it was a jujitsu meme. I know. (laughs) it, It had a very good point. It said, for every day that you feel bad because you got your tail whipped at jujitsu, you still beat the guy sitting at home on the couch. And I so needed to hear that because what stops me from going is getting my tail whipped. And it's not always a tail whip by another person. Sometimes I'm just frustrated with myself for having a hard time figuring this out. I'm frustrated with my conditioning. I'm frustrated with, I learned this. Why did I forget it? There's always something in my head that fights me that makes me not enjoy going. But if I look at it like, If I went, I still beat all the people that didn't go at all. It's a clear win to go. If you're owning a mobile home, you are still beating the snot out of all the people renting a house from somebody else. 
right? Don't compare yourself to the person that owns a home if you're okay with where you're at. Compare yourself to the person that's not doing anything to improve their financial picture. You're already in a better position and buy another mobile home and another one. Maybe you could have six of those suckers, right? Get the foreclosed one. There you go. It's a way that you can make money in real estate. You don't have to live in Beverly Hills to be able to make this happen. So I, for one, appreciate that you're out there sending that message to that. And I'm sure our audience who is in that position does too. Thank you. All right, Rob, what do you think so far? You like today's show? Do you like being a part of Seeing Green? I do like this show, actually. And I do think it is nice. Like we don't, we, you know, usually we come in and we're obviously wanting to know people's story, but it is nice to kind of talk about some of these bigger topics. Um, and I actually agree with a lot of what you said, Christina, about there are perfectly nice folks that are trying their hardest to get uh, an affordable house and it's just not an option to them at this moment. And it's not, I don't really love the argument of like, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps because look at all, all the people who have done it. Cause it's not that easy for a lot of people. It, it really, really, really isn't. And so I, I definitely feel for that, that side of the industry. So my question that I was going to ask you were, what are the actual, are there solutions that you think if if we did this, this would help solve this problem? Or do you think the solution lies in the, like in the government's hands to create more subsidized housing? Like what, what would be kind of an ideal scenario? I'm sure you've, uh, on, you've talked about it on your channel, but I'm I'm sort of curious on my end. Well, it isn't just, you know, one magic pill and call it a day. You know, the commercial red, uh, real estate right now is you know, if anyone hasn't told you that a lot of areas is tanking like a rock and you could turn a lot of those into affordable homes, even condos. We have a lot of empty malls throughout the United States. We could, why don't you turn those into retirement facilities where everything on the upper level is medical related and then the seniors could live at the bottom for condos? I mean, that is like an encompassing little community within a community. I mean, like that would be so incredibly smart. There's also a lot of land that's owned by local governments that can be turned into housing. And I'm not telling you, like, I'm not saying that every house has to be, you know, you know, four bedrooms, three baths for people. Most people, most people that are trying to get in their first home would be totally satisfied with a two bedroom, one bath with a little kitchen and a backyard. And if they were able to get that in their community, they would buy it instantaneously. But there's tons of places all around Colorado that have gotten so expensive that that dream of owning a home will never, ever happen. We've gotten to the point where when I was growing up and when I was buying my first house, I was a hairdresser and my husband was selling cars and we were able to afford to buy a home. That person today working in Orlando, Florida, selling cars and a hairdresser most likely can't afford a home in their local area. That's a problem. We used to be able to have people buy houses. So build houses that people can afford. Offer government-backed uh, loans and incentives for those builders to build those. There's tons of land that's owned by the government and local uh, um, go governments as well that can be given to those developers to have that land. It is very possible to be done with modular construction. It was done after World War II. You can have those houses built just like that. Just pop them right into place. They did it before. They can do it again. It's possible. It's just you got to have it available to people to buy. If you put it there, they will buy it. Ultimately, I'd agree with that. I think it seems like the government, and I think there probably are certain programs like the Opportunity Zone Act, for example, but I think the government definitely would have to subsidize and make it uh, or incentivize investors to do so because from an investment standpoint, it's really hard to tell someone to go flip a house, take all the financial risk of doing so, 
and then be like, hey, instead of making a hundred grand on your flip, what if you just made 50 so that another family can be into it? And while that it obviously is achieving a good goal of helping people get into it, it is hard to talk an investor into that logic, right? And that's where I think probably, it, my guess, government incentives would come into play to help at least an investor play ball with the idea because honestly, like, it's hard. It's a it's a hard argument to to make. I think. I don't know. What do you think about that? Like I was thinking incentives like tax credits. Uh, they can give like uh discounts on building materials. They can all work together to make it work. And the like like I said, those that land they own, they've owned forever. So if they just give that to them at a much more reasonable price, of course that they can build the houses for a lot less expensive because the land itself isn't that expensive. You know, development of land is a big chunk of what costs a house. And if you eliminate that, that's going to make the house a lot less expensive to build. All right, Christina, last question from me before we ask people where to find out more about you. What are some resources that people can use if they want to get more into learning about the affordability space? So I have the most incredible book. And this lady is such a nice lady. Her name is Whitney Sellers. And uh, the book that I want everybody to pick up if they're wanting to get into the affordable housing space and investing in that is uh, Housing for a Purpose. It's a guide to investing in real estate for both profit and social good. All right. Love her. Love this book. So good. And then my land one is, you, you want to get into buying land? The 10 Things You Didn't Know About Buying Land by Cheryl Sane. She's also a real estate agent, by the way, because she's really good. I call it the Bible of real estate, <laughs> of buying real estate land. I actually have the book on my counter here. <laughs> and if people want to know more about you, where can they go? Well, I'm on the YouTubes. I'm on YouTube. Just look up my name. It's Christina with a K and my last name is Smallhorn. I guarantee you probably won't find another one. <laughs> <laughs> go look it up, guys. It's a great channel. She dives into this topic quite a bit. I've seen you do a, a lot of your videos where you break down like, you know, uh, this this barn you can buy from Home Depot. Is it a good option? Is it a not option? And like, I think it's really nice that you're bringing education to this side of things because honestly, I, I don't think that a lot of people are. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me on. I love talking about it. There's some cool stuff at Home Depot, man. People turn those those sheds into houses and they're amazing. I've always wanted to, Rob, to where do can, one. Uh, where, where can people find me? It's okay. We, uh, you can find me uh, on the YouTubes as well. Both of them. Both of the YouTubes. There's two of them. Uh, you can find me at Rob Built. But before you do, go look up Christina Smallhorn, please. And then uh, on Instagram, you can find me at the same place, Rob Built. What about Vimeo? Can I find you on Vimeo? No, I'm not. I'm not much of a of a Vimeo guy, unfortunately. Not yet. Well, that's a bummer because that's all that I use. That's probably why I've never seen your YouTube channel. You can find me everywhere at David Green 24. Same thing, YouTube or davidgreen24.com to see what I got going on. Guys, if you like this content, if you enjoyed hearing about this, if you feel like your mind is blown and you're hearing things you don't hear anywhere else, please do us a favor and go leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm only asking for this because it is very important that we get those. If you don't leave us those reviews, we shrink further down the list, even though it's not fair. That's what happens. And then go give everybody a follow. Follow Christina, Rob, and I. We will love you for that. And tune in to the next Bigger Pockets episode. Christina, any uh, last words you want to leave us with before we go? Oh, I'm going to shamelessly plug. I have a YouTube course if you're a real estate agent. It's called the YouTube Video Geeks. And if you're interested in it, I'll let me know. I will I will hook you up and tell you all my secrets on how I built my YouTube channel. Yes, we uh, all need that because we'll be eating bags of sand if you don't. <laughs> and I don't know that my digester track can handle that. <laughs> Correct. Stupid. This is David Green for Rob. He's stupid. Abasola. <laughs> Signing off.
There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the bigger pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.